Well, it was about four years ago, actually, this summer, when uh, I was going to be gone for General Assembly. It happens every four years. I know this because it's coming up again this summer. It's about four years ago when I was going to be gone on a Sunday, so I decided to invite the president of the local Santa Barbara Rescue Mission to come and preach at our church. And uh, he did, and that was all good. I heard good reports. And uh, the next Sunday, I returned, and I looked out, and I saw he and his family coming again. And he walked in, and he said, James, I'm here. I'm back for another round. And uh, I thought, well, that's kind of odd. But it turned out that uh, the Guiling family had had a a wonderful experience with our church family, and uh, began to make a beautiful connection. And uh, we've walked a wonderful journey together, challenging at times over the last four years. And I'm not talking about you, Rolf. That's uh, been a bit of a challenge as well from time to time. But uh, a, a joyful journey as well. And we get to, uh, we get to see... Wilson and Max and Trish up front quite a bit. Uh, you know about Olivia and Rudy as well. But uh, it's a joy to have Rolf come and preach for us. Rolf is the president of the Santa Barbara Rescue Mission, uh, a great partner in ministry both there and here in our local church where he gives such wonderful leadership. It's a joy to have him come and lead us uh, to God's throne and in his word today. I'm going to go ahead and dismiss our kids for Children's Church and invite Rolf to come on. Hey kids, just remember I didn't leave when you got here, okay? <laughs> Not cool. It is, it is really uh, fun to have a chance to be here. Um, uh, uh, we get an opportunity to be in a number of different churches in the area, but it's always fun to be with your family. Um, so, um, Trish and I spent about 10 years, pretty much most of the 90s, in ministry in South Central Los Angeles. We were working cross-culturally uh, in a very diverse community. In fact, uh, it was such a cross-cultural experience that we were pretty much the, the only white people on, not only just on our block, but, but actually for several blocks. And... Uh, it is a very rich time that will forever treasure it because any time you immerse yourself in a different culture, there are inevitably going to be times and moments when special distinct uh, distinctions about culture are made evident. And I remember one such time when my aunt from Austria came to visit us. And uh, my aunt's name was Barbara, but ever since childhood, she went by the name Mousy, which is German for mouse. And I don't know how she got the name, but that's just what my dad always called her. And, uh, in, in our family, we actually kind of expanded on the nickname a little bit and actually started referring to her as Chocolate Mousy. Because uh, every time Mousy came for visits, she came with bags stuffed with this unbelievable amount of cookies and candy and crackers and chocolate from Austria. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, she could keep all the other stuff and just bring the Milka chocolate that came in these purple, they, they actually, you can buy it now sometimes in the US, but it's this purple Milka chocolate that is just indescribably good. 
And uh, as early on in my life, I learned that uh, if Mousy ever gave you a chocolate bar, the thing to do was to hide it as quickly as possible. Um, and part of that was to protect you from anybody else in the household laying hands on it. But the other thing was, if Mousy thought you were out of chocolate, another chocolate bar would come. So, so we trained the kids in this, and it worked really well. And so, so you know, chocolate Mousy would deliver like crazy. Well. On this particular trip into our neighborhood in South Central LA, she didn't disappoint. And given the ministry that we had, we had this constant stream uh, of kids from the neighborhood coming in and out of the house. Uh, they came no matter what, but when you had a visitor from Austria that spoke German, it was even more of a curiosity. And so kind of the, the pace of visitors picked up. And, you know, the kids figured out pretty, pretty quickly about this whole chocolate and candy racket that Chocolate Mousy was running. And so they would think, you know, they'd, you know, they'd come over and then they'd be like, oh, I forgot my left shoe. I'd knock on the door again and be like, oh, I forgot my shoe. Oh, any more chocolate. So um, one of our most regular visitors during that period of our life was a little African-American boy named Jeremy who lived down the street. And Jeremy was an incredible charmer. And he was really impressed by this mocha chocolate. And so he ate his fill and actually at one point very politely asked, if he could take some of this Austrian chocolate home to his mama and let her taste some of it. And so, of course, he went off. Uh, and about 15 minutes later, there is this urgent knock on our door. And we go down, and there, there stands Lois, Jeremy's mom, who's also a good friend of ours. And she has this kind of wide-eyed expression, almost traumatic on her face. And like before we could ask her what's wrong, she just said, that chocolate it's incredible. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And we're like, uh, and Alois was a very courteous and polite person, but she just simply came out and said, you have any more of that chocolate? I need more of that chocolate. And so, so music to chocolate Mousy's ears and she kind of loaded her up and Alois went down uh, with a pretty good score back to her house. And about an hour later, I pulled out of the street and there I see kind of Alois sitting on her front stoop, kind of in a cocoa coma, you know, kind of just so, <laughs> You know, hands on her stomach as if she was in pain, but this look of just, just bliss on her face. And, you know, as I kind of roll down, she just keeps saying, you know, it's almost like chocolate, chocolate. Well, when I came back that evening and then any time after that, it was always really fun to hear Elois rave about that chocolate and actually to try to put into words to somebody else in the neighborhood exactly what it was like. Because Elois would say, oh, Rolf, remember that time you had that great chocolate? And... Somebody say, oh, yeah, I love chocolate. I remember the time I got a Hershey bar. At the and she say, no, 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 no. This is nothing to do. And the lowest would just be sitting there. This is nothing like what you get. This is not like a Hershey bar. This is not like anything you buy off the ice cream truck or the candy truck that comes down the street. And she would just be so kind of just these words to describe it would be elusive. She said it was, it was, it was like silk. It was like butter chocolate. It was like rich and... Uh, and she just couldn't come up with words to describe it to somebody else who had never experienced Austrian chocolate. And I think the, the, the struggle that Alois had in trying to describe this, this Austrian chocolate is actually a good way to think of this series that we've been doing here at the church. This idea in this saved series, we have been trying to understand this magnificent but yet elusive concept of salvation. And the writers of the New Testament and theologians since then 
have continually tried to make passes and come up with different words to describe this incredibly indescribable work that Jesus did on the cross. And it's not something that we could just simply and succinctly define and understand it all together. And so we've looked at multiple perspectives on it as the New Testament has spelled it out. The idea of adoption, the idea of regeneration or sanctification or justification. And each one of these are true and accurate, but none of them completely describes the idea of salvation. So as a comprehensive definition is elusive, the approach that this series has taken is looking at different aspects of it. Uh, it's been looking at different facets of something very complex to give us some larger understanding of the whole. It's kind of like when I was a kid, I remember going into, um, into the town where there was a construction, uh, construction going up. And they had one of those construction fences where it was all blacked out except for little slots. And if I was really good while my mom ran her errands, she would take me there and I could go and look at a bulldozer or something through the little hole in the fence. Well, and so, you know, what you're doing then is at different points, we'd wonder, wow, there's a big hole in the ground. And the first thing I think is, gosh, I think they're building a swimming pool, Mom. You know, and then it was like you go around the other side, nah, there's a ramp, it looks like a garage. But from every different angle you got, you kind of would start to try and make sense of what was going up inside that. And I think that's almost what we're doing here with salvation, is we're just kind of peering at different vantage points of this incredible thing and hopefully that's giving us kind of more of an understanding of, of the whole larger idea. So I'm excited, and tonight, uh, to, tonight, have I gone that long? Um, uh, that will be chapter, chapter seven of my sermon this morning. Uh, no, this morning we're gonna look at the idea of redemption. Uh, Ephesians 1.7 reads simply, in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Now, if you have a Bible program or concordance, you can look at new redemption is mentioned several times. There's a lot of passages that mention redemption in the New Testament. And uh, I kind of thought I could come this morning and we could run through them, but just take my word for it, for it it's in there. Uh, because redemption is a common term that the Gospels use to describe the saving work of Jesus. Uh, in fact, one of the things I realize in my own head, uh, it gets often thrown about unthinkingly in scripture, in sermons, in preaching, in church talk, in singing, that I often let that term of redemption pass by without much scrutiny. We use it. We say, oh, redeemed. Oh, yeah, we know what that means. Or, and there's a real danger in letting something that is actually mysterious and complex and incredible just simply become commonplace and familiar and not engage the appropriate sense of wonder we should have over it. And so that's why, uh, that's, that's what I feel about redemption. Now, redemption is something that we, uh, you know, it's, it's a word we use every day, the idea of redeeming. Uh, you and I kind of, probably when we hear it most is in simple financial transactions where it connotes something along the lines of exchanging something or, or exchanging for something of value. You know, you have a coupon, you redeem it. You have airline miles, you redeem them. Uh, you are exchanging a certificate that only signifies value for something of actual value. But the words the Bible uses in talking about redemption actually communicate something very specific and a, lot more, and a lot stronger. Because the words that are used in the New Testament have to do with reclaiming things uh, from dire circumstances. Not just reclaiming things, but reclaiming people out of dire circumstances. 
So it's the vocabulary of freeing somebody from slavery, of liberating prisoners of war, or, or of ransoming captives. And these are all extremely intense and dire situations. You know, I was with my parents last week uh, in Alabama, and my dad is at a point in his life where he's thinking a lot about family history, and it's really fun to kind of just talk to my dad about my family history. And uh, we talked about my grandfather, who was a prisoner of war for seven years in a Siberian prison camp. And actually, because he was, a, he was an Austrian officer, he, uh, he wasn't necessarily abused, he was treated with privilege, but even without mistreatment, I just, seven years, I just can't imagine what that would have been like to be separated from your family and from your homeland and not really know any time you're gonna come back. In fact, he was in such a remote area, my dad, this is just a little aside, my dad said he was in such a remote area that they didn't even lock him up. Uh, basically, you know, they said the only way out of here is to ride the train and <laughs> you're not gonna get on the train. Nobody, everybody knows if you get on the train. And so he said basically they just, you know, but that's how desolate and, and far away it was. And I just can't imagine the anguish that that must have been in his life. We have his diary where he writes about that. Um, a few years ago, there was this movie uh, that I never saw. It was called Taken. And it was about a man's family or kids being kidnapped and, and his kind of negotiation process he goes through with kidnappers. And, you know, I never saw the movie because, frankly, the previews were intense enough for me to get the message. And I said, you know, I just don't want to spend 90 minutes in that kind of stress, you know? <laughs> and kidnapping, prisoners of war, hostages are gut-wrenching circumstances. And I can only imagine how painful they must be to, you know, to have actually experience firsthand. I mean, I didn't even want to see a movie about it myself. But that is the setting that we need to have in our mind when we, when we contemplate and we hear the New Testament talk about redemption. That's the terminology that's being employed. And when Jesus describes his ministry in Mark 10:45, he says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom, Don't, uh, that, that's, that's an extremely intense term to be using. It's a bit more significant than just trading in a coupon. And this is essential for us to realize as we wrap our, our minds about what it means to be saved. Christ has ransomed us. Christ has redeemed us. And there's a lot we could say about redemption, but this morning I really want to focus on two key aspects because they really help the concept stick out to me. And the first is, is that redemption is only necessary in dire circumstances. And the second is, is that redemption requires a great cost. So to take a look at the first, you know, if you're not in dire circumstances, you don't need to be redeemed. And I think this is where sometimes redemption really is elusive to me because do I really view myself as being in dire circumstances or having been in dire circumstances? Um, not long after our family arrived in Santa Barbara, I fulfilled a longtime dream of mine by buying a, a sea kayak. And uh, you know, I found a great deal on Craigslist for a 17-foot fiberglass touring uh, kayak. It's got a rudder, it's got portholes, it's, it's, you know, it is sleek and fast and it cuts through the water just like a dagger. And uh, I had a chance to test paddle it around Santa Barbara Harbor before I uh, finalized the transaction, but I just could not wait for the first Saturday after I bought it 
when I could actually take that thing out for a spin on the open ocean. And so I started out on early on a Saturday morning at Goleta Beach. And I saw Campus Point, and I kind of went out, and boy, before I knew it, I was at Campus Point. And then I looked down to Devereaux, and I said, wow, I'm going to head down that way. And after kind of keeping up a steady cadence, I made it around Devereaux. And then I looked down, and I saw the pier at the Bacara, and I said, hey, I'm going to go that way. Well, on the way to Bacara, you pass the Elwood oil fields, and off the Elwood oil fields, there are these mooring buoys. And there's like a dozen seals on them. And so I stop there, and I'm looking at these seals and communicating kind of across species. I'm, <laughs> I have cross-cultural experience, after all. Um, <laughs> and it's really fun. And as I'm kind of looking at these seals and kind of thinking about what these buoys are, off in the distance, I see oil platform Holly out there. And if I listen carefully, I can almost hear it calling me. And I'm thinking, wow, you know? And at this point, you know, looks a long way out, but, you know, you know, I thought, you know what? I'm just going to go 15 minutes that direction, see how far I get. And uh, so off I paddled, right out, away from the coast toward the oil platform Holly. And as I'm going out, 15 minutes passes by, and I say, man, I made progress. That thing's, I, I'm over halfway there, you know? And so I'm like, I'm, I'm, I am now an experienced sea kayaker <laughs> with a fine ocean-going vessel. I'm going to go around it. And so I keep paddling. About 40 minutes later, I realize oil platform Holly is a lot bigger than I thought. In fact, the thing is huge, and it caused me to kind of misjudge that I was nowhere near halfway. But at this point, I am committed, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm going around the thing. And at certain points, I'm thinking, you know, you know, and as you start making out signs on the side of it that say, danger, do not come near here, I'm thinking, well, okay, that's for the other people out here that, you know. <laughs> but I decide, and then I also think, you know, I'm close enough to read the signs. I could turn around now and say I was out there, but... There's something about, you know, braggadocio that makes you say, no, I got to go around it. I got to go completely around the thing just to make sure that I actually, I mean, I was completely there. I did not stop 50 yards short. And so I go around the thing and, you know, I don't know what I was expecting. I thought maybe there'd be oil workers waving nicely at me saying hi. And, and, but, you know, nobody, I couldn't see anybody. I don't know if anybody saw me. And, you know, all of a sudden I'm out there and realizing, wow. This ocean swell is actually quite large. If I'm looking at land now, I'm seeing it only when I'm top of land. But anyway, so at that point, I look back and I look at Campus Point and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna, you know, make my way home. And, you know, on the way, you know, I'm thinking about Leif Erikson and things like that as I'm paddling my way in. My intrepid explorer kind of is feeling pretty good about now. And I made it and it was cool. And I remember kind of telling a few people about my little paddle around Platform Holly and the more I talked about it, I got some quizzical looks. And frankly, now when I tell that story, I shudder when I tell it. Because in my own naivety, I did not realize how dangerous a situation I was in there. You know, I didn't tell anybody where I was going. I had a life jacket, but I had no safety gear that you really should have when you're out on the ocean in a kayak. No spare paddle, no food, no water, no radio, no means of signaling anybody. And, you know, there. There are things that happen out there in the ocean. The one thing is, you know, I may feel large and obtrusive in most circumstances, <laughs> but if you get 400 yards offshore in a sea kayak, unless somebody is really looking to find you, you are completely invisible. 
An oil platform, Holly, is about two, two and a half miles offshore. And let me tell you, if, if something happened, if I cramped up, if I fell into the water, I could paddle and splash all I wanted, but nobody would see me. And you know, even with a life jacket on, with the water temperature and the current being what it is, it's, 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 you know, it's kind of debatable whether or not I would be able to make it all the way back to shore. And so now I tell that story thinking, gosh, that was just a dumb, dumb thing to do. And, uh, and the fact of the matter is the reason I tell this story is that, that you know, the main reason why I perhaps don't understand the idea of redemption so much is that I don't necessarily embrace or conceive the dangerous situation, the peril that I am in as a human being that, that requires redemption. Being a people of relative privilege in an affluent nation, uh, inescapable hopelessness and despair is not something that we ne necessarily readily identify with. But the writers of the New Testament keep putting that forward. They would not employ the term redemption if that were not the case, if there were not a set of dire circumstances to be redeemed from. Because the idea of a ransom implies a powerless object, you know, or more specifically, powerless people. Slaves are powerless to regain their freedom. Um, and prisoners of war are hopeless unless somebody outside their situation takes, act takes action to free them. And such a lack of power, it runs contrary to the way that we might view ourselves. You know, if you think about it, most of the action movies that we watch, you know, tell stories of people who heroically work their way out of desperate situations. The odds may be stacked against them. The, the, uh, the barriers seem insurmountable and the opposition seems just unbeatable. But yet the Jason Bournes and the, the Rambos and the Indiana Joneses of our world, they kind of fight their way and they make a way where there is no way all on their own. And if a movie truly depicted kind of the reality of a, of a, of a, of a person in bondage that could do nothing to change their circumstances, and get out of the predicament, it will be a boring and a very depressing movie for us to watch. I mean, think about it. You know, what kind of movie would you make with somebody just sitting there saying, well, what, I guess I gotta wait. Who's coming? I don't know. <laughs> Completely waiting on somebody else to take action on our behalf. But that is really the most accurate description of our situation. We need redemption because we are powerless to change our circumstances. And it's important for me to be reminded of this because I tend I get tricked into thinking that I played some kind of an operative role in my salvation. That salvation was perhaps somehow contractual. That, that you know, God presented me with an offer that I carefully reviewed, and then I methodically made a decision that I, it looks like a pretty good deal, God, I think I'll take that. But redemption is telling me that I am not that smart and I don't have that kind of power. Because of my sin, I was in a completely hopeless place, unable to do anything to save myself. I was completely dependent on God taking action to free me from that. You only need redemption out of dire circumstances. And that redemption also requires a great cost, which was my second observation. You know, the words used in the New Testament would have been very familiar to the people reading them, like I said, because they, they, they were out of the context of, of war and bondage and hostage situations. 
And nowadays, you know, we have things like the Geneva Convention that, that provide for the safe and diplomatic return of, of prisoners of war. Um, but in the ancient Near East, it was a different system, and ransoms were designed to hurt. I mean, think about it. You know, one, one nation goes to war against another nation. You know, you are trying to inflict as much damage on your enemy as possible. You, so in addition to taking as much territory as you can, you also grab as many of the other nation's citizens as you can. And once you do that, you are not simply going to let them walk away at the end of the war. In fact, it may be one way of inflicting a final blow on your opponent to make them pay handsomely to get their citizens returned to them. Ransom negotiations are, are unique in that they typically, do not, uh, they typically do not include price haggling. You know, I mean, think about it. You know, the ransom demand is made. They say, you know what, we'll give you your hostages back for $2 million. Nobody says, well, gosh, would you take 750000 You know, it's no. I mean, the party says, well, where am I going to come up with $2 million? Because whatever is being held is of such value and so priceless to the person uh, presented with the ransom that they will do whatever is necessary to free them. And there, there's also uh, no such thing as a cheap ransom. I mean, you know, think about it. You, you wouldn't walk around bragging about the great deal you got on a ransom. You know, I say, oh, I, I got my kids back. It only cost me 800 bucks. And, you know, your buddy says, really? Wow, I paid 1,200. I thought I was getting a good deal. That's a, that's a mighty good ransom you got. No, I mean, the fact is, is they are, they are, they are exorbitant. They are extreme. And they signify a high price paid for a human life on which there can be no value placed. And when we acknowledge that the saving work of Jesus is is one of redemption, of one of liberating captives, that assumes that it came at a stupendous cost. But for me, redemption should not just simply remain a theological construct or, or just something that we can ponder in, uh, uh, intellectually, because, because this idea of redemption really should have life-impacting implications for us. We are redeemed from hopelessness and powerlessness where we were unable to take any action to change our circumstances. We desperately needed help from somewhere outside ourselves, and that help came. Freeing us required an obscene ransom, and that ransom was paid. And when we let that sink in, I, I hope your response is, wow, am I really worth that much? I mean, if we were hostages and we learned that $10 million was paid for our release, wouldn't you just be overwhelmed with gratitude? So in the same token, learning that Jesus himself was the ransom for us, we should, we should emerge just awestruck that we are actually that valuable to God. And that sense of value is a very powerful thing to have. And one of the most amazing privileges I have in my work at the rescue mission is that I get to see this idea of redemption in action. Uh, I get to see what happens when individuals suddenly it, it get an understanding uh, for the value that they have in God's eyes. And uh, as I was preparing here, I'm really excited that my friend Anna could be here because for those of us who came to the graduation last week, uh, she told this incredible story that kind of just to me embodies this concept any better than uh, anything else I could. And I was kind of thinking of telling you 
Anna's story, and then I realized, you know what? She tells it better herself. And so, so Anna, if you'd come up here, Anna was the graduation speaker at our, at our graduation last week. So I said, Anna, why don't you just come and give the speech again? So uh, excited to have you here. And, all right. You want this mic? Oh, here. <laughs> Go ahead. Thank you. I'm going to read you guys my um, speech. My name's Anna. I'm 37 years old. My parents moved to Lompoc in 1982. I'm the second youngest of 11 kids. My family was very dysfunctional, but to me that was normal. Living in a house of chaos, I was used to being around drugs and alcohol, so to me, it really wasn't strange. Growing up and feeling unloved and rejected was hard for me, and I would always pretend that I lived this fairy tale so no one at school would tease me or find out that I lived a nightmare. I always tried to be the center of attention so my mom and sisters and brothers would give me the love and care I felt I deserved. But little did I know that was never going to be the case. As I got older, I found who would I consider to be my real family, the streets, the crowd of kids I called my friends. I always ditched school to go with the bad crowd of kids who always accepted me and made me feel a part of. They really didn't care who I was, just what they can get from me. I was 14 years old when I started drinking and using drugs, and even though I knew it wasn't the smartest thing to do, I, I felt good and not alone. I always felt that it was a mistake for me to have been brought into this world. As I got older, my life got worse. I always wanted to do good and be somebody, but was always reminded at home that I would never amount to nothing. Well, that stuck to my head, and my actions and thinking definitely spiraled down. And my drinking and drug use became my lifestyle. And I didn't have to feel rejected or in fear of being a failure, because that's what my family taught me. So my life ran on fear, anger, and hate. I didn't care about no one, especially myself. Really never cared to know who I really was. I was this weird, dysfunctional kid who was just trying to survive. My mother drank daily and would try to watch over, I would always try to watch over her, and she made sure I knew I wasn't appreciated. I never had the guts to ask her why she did what she did to me. Having my own kids, I always wanted to be the best mom. But drinking and drugs was used was more important than anyone, even them. Losing my kids was the most pain I felt in life. And that didn't stop my drug use. In fact, it got worse. So after going on the run from probation, I got arrested for the last time on December 10, 2011. I was arrested in Lompoc and sent to Santa Barbara County Jail where I was facing a four-year prison term. Every time I'd been incarcerated before, I survived by fighting at a drop of a dime and having little or no communication unless I was absolutely necessary and making sure everyone around me knew I was unapproachable. While I was waiting to be sentenced, I was placed in a sheriff treatment program. There I was offered an opportunity for a residential drug program rather than state prison for four years. The counselor gave me an application for Bethel House, and I had no—I I had to be there for one year. I applied and was accepted. 
I could go for one year and not really be in jail, wear regular clothes and definitely eat better food. I figured this would be an easy piece of jail time. But if I didn't like it, I would just stay for a minute. Then since there were no locks on the doors, I would just walk out. And for the first two weeks, I looked at that front door. Every day, my mind telling me to leave, but my feet not being able to go. I believe the staff at Bethel House had no idea who I was, and I was definitely not going to let these people know who I was or where I came from. And since I was used to dealing with authority in jails, there was no way I was going to do anything I didn't want to do. Well, I stayed to myself for a few days, not really talking to anyone. All I would do is count the days and would tell myself, okay, another day down of the 365 days I had to be there. Well, that didn't last for long. Little did I know that for the first 30 days, that's what they gave us, time to settle down and to get comfortable. And believe me, there wasn't a day I didn't want to just walk out. I felt like I didn't belong there. All the girls were so happy and loving life. I was like, okay, brainwash. <laughs> <laughs> and I definitely didn't want to be part of it. After my first 30 days was up and I was accepted, I was like, okay, I'll see what really is going on here. Why haven't they seen I wasn't interesting or willing to change my life? It wasn't me the problem, it was the world around me. Well, at least that's what I told myself. So they started working with me, and I started to program daily, going to all my Bible study classes and my process groups with my tracker, who I thought she really had no, a lot to learn about who she'd be dealing with. And even though my walls were so high up and me not want, wanting to hear her suggestions she gave me, I felt I can do this. There's nothing I need to change. I'm good. Well, that didn't last for long. I started getting in trouble and called on my behaviors and that was on a daily basis. I figured they'd be, getting, they'd be getting tired soon, but for some reason the suggestions and lots of quality time with staff was having a huge impact on me. That's when I know God was starting to work on me. It didn't happen overnight, but I started to listen, and then I started to pray and ask God for help. At some point, I really don't know when, but I started to think, if I did what these people said, this might work, even for me. Again, I have to be honest, I was no angel, especially in the beginning. I had some minor speed bumps, been disciplined, but I can honestly say it was always done in a loving, caring way. It wasn't fun or easy, but I wasn't feeling attacked. I felt that my best interest was in mine and my attention needed to be gotten. Well, finally I had enough and I was tired of trying to go against what staff was talking to me about. And I felt like, okay, maybe they mean me no harm. I finally came out and saw that my walls were getting lower and I started to see things clear and finally broke down and I said to myself, I really need help. So one day I went to staff and said, I'm willing to take all the guidance and suggestions to do what you people asked me to do to change my life. That's when for the first time in my life, I felt the peace of surrender come over me. Staff helped me by introducing me to a Genesis book and that's when I really started to feel different. Working in that book with my counselor is when I really turned the corner. I was beginning to see why I felt the way I felt for so long and what I could do about it. I went to church services and I started working on becoming spiritually healthy. I was able to get involved in a 12-step program in the community, which helped me even more and gave me a chance to build a support network that I will still have after I leave Bethel House. When I started this program on 
March 28, 2012, I really thought I was just going to do time. But it wasn't really time I was doing. I was opening the door for a new life, which all the staff helped me build. Even though I was this hardcore chick who didn't see anything good in herself, they sure did. And they loved and helped me till I came out of all four walls and became the loving, caring lady I am today. I stand here today a complete different person with complete different ideas, thoughts, feelings, and dreams. I feel great about where I'm, how I feel today. The best part of it all is I really believe this is the way I've been meant to feel. I, I stand here today a whole new different person. I am a woman of God with love, kindness, integrity, and a life thanks to God, Bethel House, and staff, and everyone who's a part of my life today. All of you, thank you. does it's there is no more vivid illustration of someone understanding how God truly feels about them what a deep value it you know what a what a beautiful thing it is to see that sense of value restored and uh, for all of us may we never forget may we never lose sight of the preciousness that we have in God's eyes and so Anna I'm just just so grateful for you and uh for the illustration that you are. So, um, the idea that we are outlandishly valuable to God is not simply a New Testament idea. If you read Isaiah, you realize that God has always had this irrational sense of, of value when it comes to people. Sending Jesus was just the clearest expression we have of it. But uh, I'm struck by what he says in Isaiah 43, which I'd like to close with today because it gives such a clear picture of the way that God feels about us and all that motivates him behind redemption. And if you listen to Isaiah 43, you'll hear that. You'll hear kind of that no cost is too great for God to pay uh, for the people that he wants to redeem. Um, so I'd like you to kind of listen however you'd like to. I think we'll have the words up on the screen, but if you want to close your eyes as well, but just to listen to these words and let them soak in, because it's very important. One of the things I noticed when I was reading Isaiah 43 was there is a repeated word in every single line. And that word is simply you. And you will hear it. It is you, you, you. So this is not a passage of scripture that we should just read as kind of a, 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 you know, a distant third party and say, well, isn't that nice that God feels like that about people? This is this, really the way this is written. You should feel like, uh, you, you should feel the awkwardness that when somebody sings happy birthday to you in a crowded restaurant and you're just like, oh, please stop, not another verse, you know, just, just because it, what's awkward about that is that it is, you know, we are the focus of people's affection and they're, and they're singing. And this, you know, when you read Isaiah 43, that is the feeling you should get is, you know, you are being serenaded and God is looking at you and speaking directly to you. So let me close with that. Isaiah 43 reads, But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, 
I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead, since you are precious and honored in my sight, because I love you. I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Father, we were hopeless, unable to summon any kind of strength, ability, or knowledge to get out of that. And into that despairing place, you came, unable to restrain yourself or hold anything back because of the value that you place on us. Thank you for your work of redemption. May those of us who claim it cling to it, and may the incredible love you have for us draw all of us closer to you. And it's in your precious name we pray. Amen.